I'm Q. Hi, I'm Q. Hi, I'm Q. Hi, 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 hi. I'm clinical psychologist Dr. Dave Demmer. Hey, I'm clinical psychologist Dr. Jamie Byrne. And hi, I'm fighty and flighty, it's Dr. Tom. And welcome to the Meet Q podcast, where each episode we meet Q, a fictional member of the LGBTQIA plus community who's struggling with their mental health, while the three of us sit around and have a chat about what's going on for Q and how we would support Q in therapy. Thanks for joining us. We acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, we pay our respects to their elders past and present, and we extend that respect to any First Nation listeners today. Sovereignty was never ceded. Hello, gang. Oh, hi. 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 This is our last episode. It is. I'm feeling a little bit sad. Mm. I've got the tissues at the ready. Yeah, oh, that's good. Yeah, we're the sucks. We should have the tissues. Last episode for this season. For this season, yeah. TBC. Exactly. And what a wonderful journey it's been so far, huh? I know. Oh, the road's been undulating. <laughs> like my curves. <laughs> it's, been, it's been really a real pleasure working yeah. with the two of you on this. Absolutely. I absolutely adore yeah. it. And we look forward to season two. But before that, should we meet Q? Let's do it. Hi, I'm Q. I'm a 42-year-old gay guy. I feel like I'm stuck, again, in a cycle with crystal meth. I spent a good part of my 30s using nearly every weekend. Most of the time I was able to still meet my responsibilities, but it really got out of control for a while. I went through a detox and now do a group program, but I probably should attend more regularly. I'd say I'm now in recovery, but yeah, it still creeps in sometimes. Probably once a month. At times, I don't ever want to use it again. Sometimes I think that occasional use isn't so bad. It annoys me. I feel like I did the hard work of recovery. I don't want to have to tell people again. I'm tired of that judgment. My main concern is that I struggle to have sex without Crystal. In fact... Sober sex has only happened for me once in probably about a decade, and it just felt awkward. Okay, gang, what's going on here? Sounds like we have a Q who's struggling with crystal methamphetamine. Yes. Should we set the scene a little bit here? Should we talk a little bit about crystal in the gay male community? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. So a little bit of statistics for you. Uh, so uh, in the gay community periodic survey from 2021, which Tom, correct me if I'm wrong, is what we do at Midsummer and... Yeah, Mar- so like when um, those people are going around from Thorn Harbour or mm-hmm. um, any of yep. the community groups and handing out the surveys, which I have definitely forced my friends to fill out. Um, and please, all listeners, if you're there, yes, exactly. complete them. Excellent data um, that kind of provides a little snapshot on uh, where the community's at Mm -hmm. in a variety of measures. Yeah. So within that, from the 2021 survey, uh, it let us know that 10% of all gay men um, have used methamphetamine. In the last uh, six months. In the last six months, that's right, yeah. And that's been an increase over the past three years from, uh, well, two years, 2019 through to 2021, versus the general community, which sits at about 1.3% of the general community has used. So an eightfold prevalence Uh, in the gay male community. And, you know, it's something that certainly well-known within the gay male community. Absolutely. It's a subculture in some ways, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, it's a certain segment of the community that um, it's very much as part of, like, the way they kind of have sex. Yeah. Uh, And it's, like, colloquially... Oh God, I can never party. pronounce that. Yeah. Um, it's like, well, it's it's a way of kind of, um, it's known as the PNP scene yeah. or the chemsex yeah. scene. Yeah. Um, and it's very much like 
it doesn't necessarily just exclusively reside with uh, crystal methamphetamine. Yeah. Um, but like the common other drugs that are used in the scene um, and associated with sex mm. is like GHB or GBL. Mm. Um, and in the UK, much more methadrone. Mm. But like mm. when we think about this more broadly, like I like to think about it, any intoxicant, whether it's kind of alcohol, yeah. whether it's cocaine, whether it's MDMA, yeah. whether it's yeah. ketamine, yeah. all of them will like kind of have um, kind of a bit of a crossover in terms of how they affect our experience of sex, um, in terms of that emotional and physical and kind of personal connection with either mm. ourselves or others. Okay, Tom, super interested from kind of a medical, biological perspective here. Uh, fill us in, help us understand. Yes. Well, I suppose like um, when I could see someone like you, which is not uncommon, like it's certainly so, not uncommon. Yeah. Like when you look at those stats, like 10% is a decent number. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I always kind of assess how someone's using. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the thing with uh, crystal methamphetamine is um, that essentially you'll get kind of this huge release of dopamine mm. um, kind of into the brain. And it generally hangs around for about 12 hours um, after use. And that's Such, it's so prolonged compared to so many absolutely. other uh, drugs, isn't it? And it's why you see, uh, kind of often will see that um, people who are using this will have like prolonged um, sex capades. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so kind of sessions might last kind of one, two, three days for yeah. some people. Mm-hmm. Um, until eventually the brain kind of just uh, needs to sleep. Mm. And essentially, like, the release is kind of, it's about a 1,000 times the units, Mm. Um, whereas, like, you look at something like cocaine and you're sitting at about maybe 350 times um, the number of units, and then even just, like, sex without any drugs, you're looking at about 200 times the units Mm -hmm. of dopamine. Mm. Because it's not like the brain has some, you know, crystal meth um, receptor. No, it just acts mm. on the same dopamine mm. receptors. 100%. That alcohol, that, you know, well, exercise, nicotine, sex, yeah, nicotine, yeah, food. Um, a hilarious joke, you know, all <laughs> of it, right, acts on actually the same dopamine receptors. Yeah. So, yeah. J- Jamie, what, like, just to kind of maybe fill us in, what does dopamine actually do for the brain? Yeah, I... I because this is an area of my PhD, I think of it like the sex, drugs and rock and roll, right? It's mm. kind of like the fun hormone, which kind of drives a lot of wanting, yeah, that desire, mm. that drive, that motivation. And we also know what that feels like when dopamine is low because that's really depression-y, right? Yeah, that yeah. I can't be bothered doing anything. I don't want to get up. I don't want to go to work today. That's what low dopamine feels like. So high dopamine feels like, oh, my gosh, this is so exciting. This is mm best experience and it's like us on overdrive, right? And it's really important that we separate out that wanting, that desire from that enjoyment, yeah, mm. because they're not the same thing and they often act together. So, for example, I might like a really nice glass of red wine and that actually sits differently in my brain from when I desire the glass of red wine to when I enjoy drinking the red wine and then I learn next time that red wine was really nice, so I want to mm-hmm. have that again. Mm. It's that pairing, isn't it, that right. kind of conditioning? Yeah. yeah, and they often go together. But Mm. in the case of addiction, they're quite separable. So, for example, a lot of people who use substances of abuse, right, whether this be crystal meth, you know, any other drug, alcohol, nicotine, right, 
they really desire it, they really want it, they no longer enjoy using it, yeah. okay? They no longer like it, but they deeply want it and that's that sensitization in the brain. 100%. Mm. And yeah. I think this is where I like to draw back like how I approach this. Um, anyone who kind of came to me about a substance use disorder, I would kind of assess how often they're using because it's yeah. so kind of, it really helps me triage whether or not this is going to be something that's just kind of purely recreational with like a lesser risk of harm Absolutely. Um, versus something which I can see kind of uh, getting worse mm. uh, significantly mm. over time. Um, so that would be like kind of the way I kind of market is that, for example, crystal meth, we're looking at a come down period of at least a month. Yeah. Um, okay. Whereas like cocaine, you're looking at probably more than uh, two to three weeks. And so it's lesser time. Yeah. Um, and so because of that, we know that it kind of is going to really kind of amp up in terms yeah. of its addictive quality if it's taken more frequently than a yeah. month. And what about the medical kind of harms around this, Tom? Yeah, so I suppose we've kind of touched on what can happen in the brain and like kind of what come down or withdrawal can look like. Um, but whilst like kind of using, like the drug can be incredibly toxic itself. Like methamphetamine is a synthetic drug. And so compared to say cocaine, um, and I'm going to be drawing that as a lot of comparison, but cocaine is a naturally occurring substance, um, whereas methamphetamine is synthetic. It kind of just sits in the gap between the wiring in your brain, the neurons. And as a result, it's actually toxic to the neurons. And so part of the issues um, when someone kind of comes off it is that it often leads to this kind of huge number, amount of effort required to like, engage the neuroplasticity in the brain. Mm. So that brain like kind of rewiring the things that it's lost. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's why like it can take 24 months for people to kind of feel back to 100% mm. who they were before their use. Mm. Yeah, the brain needs time to recoup and regenerate. And then, like, because um, we look at kind of crystal meth as predominantly being something that's smoked, um, yeah. like about 40 to 50% of people will be smoking mm. um, it, and then about 10 to 20% of people are going to be injecting it. Mm. If mm. they're injecting it, then that carries all the risks of mm. kind of injecting drug mm. use. Yeah, and so you're looking at something that can mm. cause issues with infections in the heart, all sorts of different stuff. But, like, I've talked a lot about harms, like how the brain um, kind of, it's affected by crystal meth, mm -hmm. um, along with the come downs and withdrawal. Mm. But like, Dave, I know this is an area of interest of yours. Like, mm -hmm. what's the kind of link to sex? Like, why do people use it? Yeah, lots of reasons. Um, and that's what really stands out in this case for me, for Q. Uh, it is incredibly rare. I could probably count on one hand the amount of clients I've seen where crystal use hasn't been intrinsically linked to sexual activity, certainly more so than most of the other substances that I support people uh, in recovery for. A couple of reasons. So I think because it is so intrinsically linked with sex that particularly gay men when they engage in crystal use they are kind of drawn into the sexual mm -hmm. scene yeah but another really important part of it i think is often around kind of shame unfortunately so you know shame related to either sexual activity with men in general uh, so be that from a place of internalized homophobia or shame around maybe certain sexual activities so maybe kind of fetishes that people are uncomfortable connecting with that they hold shame around that when you're using crystal, that shame isn't there. In fact, you're feeling somewhat invincible. You're feeling fantastic. You're feeling kind of confident to engage in these things that, that maybe the shame has kind of been a barrier to in the past. To use it as a way to kind of engage sexually without feeling a sense of shame and in order to feel confident, 
then that's sometimes how it starts. Uh, and then unfortunately, it can just then move into the realm of kind of addiction. Then all of a sudden, you know, crystal meth and that really intense level of dopamine that the two of you have been talking yeah. about is then linked with sexual activity. And suddenly, you know, sex is this amazing, yeah. you know, not that sex can't be amazing without crystal meth. It definitely can. It definitely can. Yeah. But all of a sudden, it's that, as you were saying, times a thousand. Yeah. It's one of those things where I see patients who will kind of essentially be disinhibited and mm-hmm. like this notion of that anxiety surrounding mm-hmm. like, am I entitled to this sex? Mm-hmm. Am I allow- allowing myself to engage in this? Can I kind of switch off that part of my brain that says sure. this is wrong or yeah. that, yeah. oh, am I doing a good job or yeah. any of those kind of things? Plus the fact that the drug with the dopamine is mm-hmm. so kind of, it actually kind of makes people really horny. Yeah, yeah it does. Yeah. They're like, yeah. Randy is all fuck, mm-hmm. like essentially. But it's just such a human thing that we're talking about here. You know, those thoughts of, am I doing a good job? Am I good enough? You know, these are quite a normal thought to have in any type of sexual activity. Mm. Mm-hmm. And then you pair it with this substance that goes, you don't agree. Great job. Keep yeah. going, right? Yeah. And this is then, fantastic. This then, is the most intense thing you've ever right. felt in your life. Why then, wouldn't you be drawn to that? Exactly. And people don't uh, get addicted at first use to these things, mm. but they learn really quickly. It's that learning and they go, mm. well, that felt great last time. And through that repeated, mm. that learning, that pairing mm-hmm. just continues and continues. Yeah. Mm. And I think that's a really important part of like understanding here is we often talk about this idea of oh, underneath addiction, there has to be some sort of kind of emotional difficulty that you're trying to mm. regulate mm. and maybe that's the truth at mm. the beginning mm. Um, mm. maybe that's sure. how it starts out but sure. then biology kicks in and yeah. addiction is there yeah. once upon a time we're maybe using it to regulate emotions but then unfortunately we move into a space where we need to use it to regulate withdrawal and yeah. come down Absolutely. and suddenly we're, we're you know chasing the dragon and, and yeah. um, just trying mm. to make ourselves which is that better. separation with liking right yep. where you yep. go yep. Exactly. well I don't like it anymore but I certainly don't <laughs> enjoy coming down okay gang let's talk about how we would support q in treatments tom i'll throw to you fab well um i suppose like it should be noted that essentially the medical treatment for most addictions particularly stimulants here is really just aimed at supporting someone to get through the side effects of withdrawal and mm-hmm. that's usually done through detox units which are kind of short stay um kind of one maybe two weeks kind mm-hmm. of inpatient support where you're mm-hmm. supported by medical staff and nursing staff. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what Q's kind of talking here around detox. Yeah, yeah, detox is like it's literally kind of going into a, a hospital or kind of care facility that can allow someone to be kind of supported as they're going through like the worst of the come down and withdrawal. But then there's also kind of more longer term rehabs, which is usually kind of several months And that's because like someone who's been using for a longer period is likely to have that withdrawal kind of be protracted and Mm -hmm. they're much more likely to have associated like depression and those mood effects. And Mm -hmm. it's really aimed at kind of supporting someone psychologically as well. Yeah, it's psychosocial, not just medical. Yeah, Yeah, that's Mm -hmm. how I think about detox versus kind of that longer rehab stint is is detox. It's very medical. It's very kind of managed around the physiological stuff. And then the psychosocial stuff. Yeah, but lots of people also, I think, think that the hardest part will be that detox and in a way that's kind of the part that you are super supported through yeah there is someone there there's a medical team on hand ready to help you because that's the intense acute stuff 
But then afterwards, as you've said, Tom, if you if you've been dealing using meth to help you with emotion regulation, then all of a sudden you've got emotion regulation again, and how are you dealing with it? Yeah. If you're not sleeping, you know, my area of interest is a massive one, right? And just the intolerable feeling of insomnia. What about you know that feeling of depression, which is likely to come through you know really long term use of um, substances. Well, this is where I think, unfortunately, like society has really let people down yeah. who've got addictions. Absolutely. Um, because since like the war on drugs and kind of Nixon and Reagan and all that kind of jazz of the um, 70s and 80s, we've demonised people mm-hmm. who've taken these substances mm-hmm. and viewed them as it being a moral failing on their behalf, mm-hmm. which further isolates them from society and is just completely the wrong thing to be done. That's right. Um, when it comes to kind of how we should take care of this this medical condition, mm-hmm. because it is something that is a medical treatment, uh, has medical treatment and has psychological treatment. Yep. Um, and it's not about kind of isolating someone from society because the actual treatment means that we need to um, envelop these people back into society and hold them tight this is such a passion area of mine and I'm just going to bounce off what you're talking about here, Tom. Uh, there is fantastic research around the idea of actually the opposite to addiction isn't sobriety. The opposite to addiction is connection. Yeah. And, you know, there's been these really wonderful, I'll, I'll just give a real quick little snippet here, really wonderful research around, um, you know, they put some rats in a cage that had um, nothing in it, just a boring old cage, one rat, there were two lots of water, one of the waters was plain water, one of the waters had cocaine in it, and the rat continually went to the cocaine water until unfortunately it overdosed and died. And uh, then they went, oh, hang on, this is maybe a little bit of a boring rat cage, let's see what happens when we when we put them in, I think they called it rat paradise or something like that, um, where the rat had toys to play with and wheels to spin on and lots of other little rats to play with and they still put in the plain water and they put in the cocaine water they didn't touch the cocaine water yeah Yeah. and it just demonstrates to us that um you know if someone is able to engage in you know a fulfilling value-filled connected life um that actually maybe they don't they don't um uh move into a place of addiction as much Amen. We talked about, you know, the statistics of crystal meth use within the gay male culture. And I think one of the hardest things perhaps for people in this recovery stage is where where are they getting that social support and connectedness? Mm-hmm. Because are they going to be met with open arms by that other 90-odd percent of the gay male community, right? Mm-hmm. Because there is often this stigma of, oh, you used to use meth. Like there mm-hmm. often oh, will be meth, yep. which is such an isolating experience. It's, it's horrendous. I think we do a complete disservice to anyone who's used um, crystal meth uh, because like it's really just used in a very similar pattern to any mm. other kind of street mm. drug. Mm. Yep. Unfortunately, it's just got that higher risk of um, harm and potential. Yeah. Mm. Um, and um, we like, these people need to be supported and enveloped in like kind of the warm hug, yeah. not, not yeah. kind of isolated Absolutely. and stigmatised mm-hmm. and excluded because they've previously Plus used. Plus they've got to find new social supports, right? Exactly. Because like there's such a culture around the drug use, you know, there might be sexual partners within that. And you probably don't want to be seeing these same people because, you know, temptation, as mm. my good yeah, friend Oscar triggers. Wilde yeah. said and supporter of this podcast, I can resist <laughs> everything but mm. temptation, right? So why would we would, I would never suggest a client um, continue to have, you know, engage in communities where they are using a lot of this because it would be incredibly, hard for them Mm. but 
how are they going to carve out those new social supports? Yeah, and I'm hearing that with Q here, where our paraphraser he said something along the lines of, you know, I don't want to have to talk about this with people again. I'm tired of that judgment. Yeah. That unfortunately, for some reason, we don't treat addiction as a society in the same way that we treat every other mental illness. Mm. I mean, like with, uh, you know, it always makes me cringe when I hear about interventions that, you know, a whole bunch of your friends and family and loved ones have confronted you in a room and, you know, slapped you silly to tell you, you know, get off the drugs. That doesn't work, ladies no. and gentlemen. That leads to increasing people's shame. And guess what? Lead, this is what increasing shame is linked to in the research. Higher substance use. Well, you see it across all sorts of different spectrums of like kind of health. Like you talk about like someone who's kind of engaged in um, dieting behaviours. Sure. Like if someone has like a whole lot of shame surrounding their food consumption, mm-hmm. they're much more likely to engage in binge eating behaviours, yep. for yep. example. Yep. And like I think we just need to take shame out of the notion of health because it just mm-hmm. needs to kind of be gone. Yep. Yeah. Let's support, let's not shame. Yeah. Shaming people out of addiction does not work. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Mm. That was my final thought a little bit earlier. Than yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you really like slowed it down there for a day, <laughs> didn't you? My, what do you call me, baritone? Your dulcet tones. Dulcet tones, that's right. Yes. <laughs> let's sex it up, Dave. Like how, how would you um, kind of help Q here with like this boring sex that he's having when he's sober? Mm. It's such a common concern like it's it's um that kind of after the fact thing that people start to realize that oh what's my sex life going to be like uh now that crystal's not involved and now that i don't want crystal involved uh and i'm not gonna lie it's tough uh one of the main things that that people often talk about is oh you know how do i how do i make sex as good as it was on crystal and you know i gotta say it's not really possible yeah. Well, it, like, it's different. It's different, yeah. It's not that same, you know, thousand times of dopamine, though. That's but then I think this is a really good point to actually raise that that kind of dopamine high kind of um, sensory kind of craziness that uh, someone experiences when they're intoxicated. It's not necessarily the sex that they remember anyway, because like, mm-hmm. it's actually kind of very fleeting and it's not um, emotionally connecting as much as like someone who is sober. Mm-hmm. And so when we think about like what is possible when someone's sober, it's a different kind of sex. Absolutely it is. Yeah. And um, we can't, what we know doesn't work is kind of trying to untangle crystal and sex. Yeah. Trying to make it like it's a horrible thing or trying to make it unenjoyable. Maybe that's the point I was trying to make there mm-hmm. is, is this idea of we can't really unlink those two things for you. They, they are linked. And we know that doesn't really work therapeutically. <laughs> so instead of trying to unlink those two things in what we might think of as like your sexual template or your sexual script, um, we want to add to it. Yep. Yeah. We want to uh, increase the sexual experiences that are available to you. So for oh, Q okay. here, it sounds like, you know, he said for over a decade, he hasn't, only one time has he had sex sober. We want to increase those times. We want to increase the things that he can uh, engage in enjoyably rather than trying to make, um, you know, sex on crystal a horrible, unenjoyable thing. That's not going to be possible. So through that play and exploration, which is what the dopamine system has been Mm -hmm. designed to do, right? Mm -hmm. We're finding new ways for Q to start to engage in that play and exploration. It's like you've been like living in black and white yeah, and like only having sex in black and white when you're on crystal and it's about time we open up the world of colour. That's right. And it's going to take time and it's going to be challenging. Mm. And you know what? It probably, you know, most people 
that, mm. that I speak to about this do say, you know what, it is actually, you know, a bit bland at the beginning mm. and I'm tripping over myself and mm. I'm not sexually mm. confident mm. and maybe I'm not getting hard, maybe mm. I'm not staying mm. hard, mm. Um, you know, maybe I've forgotten what I did enjoy once upon mm. a time. Mm. So if we can also flip a, maybe away from this being, you know, too scary and thinking of it as, as a moment or, or a door of opportunity for us to be able to 100%. walk through. Yeah, I think it's a really nice way that we can kind of, if we embrace that knowledge that we are going to be fumbling um, our way through like Mm -hmm. this sober sex when it comes to it and take that anxiety away. And by saying that this is just who I am right now. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Well, it's not and, anxiety and we're taking away, it's shame that we're taking yeah, away. Yeah, so, yeah. But I think it's that spectatoring, it's that yeah. performance yeah. anxiety that comes with it, this mm. kind of yeah. anticipation of like mm. poor performance. Yeah. And ultimately, like if we can say, well, look, let's treat this as if like mm. I'm going to do this in a way that is connecting with someone and I'm going to yes. be okay that um, mm. I might not be like this kind of top gun kind of um, sexual bravado person, mm. but instead I might be like a Julia Childs and mm. kind of like just having like this like <laughs> a beautiful like kind of like I'm coming <laughs> yeah I may have been watching Julia Childs last night um, but like it's just yeah it's yeah. just fun and can I just pick up on that point that you're making there Jamie around you know we're taking away that shame how do we take away shame we shine talk light onto it we it. yeah we and talk we, about yeah. it and yeah. we are vulnerable yeah, yeah one of the things I'm always wanting Brené to support, support clients around in this area is to be able to have conversations with your sexual partners sure. around yeah. this that hey you know what I'm actually dipping a toe back into this kind of world yeah. of sober sex yeah. and, and so I'm going to as you were saying Tom fumble my way through it and that is okay yeah. but you know if because we're choose- we've, we've all fumbled our way through we're sex we're many a time. Yeah. And how do, we, how do we communicate that with our yeah. sexual partners and choose sexual partners who are going to be accepting and supportive of yeah. that? And Jamie, what about from your clinical perspective? How would you be supporting Q? I think I'd take a bit of a wider lens with Q and start to, you know, you've talked about expanding sexual templates and I really love that and I think that's something I'd really engage with in therapy as well. But I'd also go, well, what else? Um, to be honest, if you're part of the crystal meth scene, that takes up a lot of your time, right? Mm. Because, you know, you're thinking about drugs, you're wanting drugs, you what? how do you get your money for drugs? All of that stuff, you know, gets tied up and kind of your whole life becomes about when am I next going to engage in a next sex party and stuff like that. So mm. um, what next? What next for Q? Mm-hmm. So I'd be going back to some basic kind of identity stuff. What did he enjoy doing before he started drug use? You know, what what made him happy? Because I'm looking for other ways to get dopamine hits. Um, I'm looking for other ways to act in the opposite way of depression. So behavioural activation, enjoyment, mm-hmm. fun. And I'd be starting that in the therapy room. I'd be wanting to make him laugh. I'd be wanting to have fun. I'd be wanting to connect because I'd be wanting to, you know, be that antidote to shame as a, mm. as a primary person. I think what you're picking up on there, Jamie, actually, is super important this idea of what's next for Q because I I do notice here that Q's also saying you know sometimes I think that I want to be absent forever and sometimes I wonder if occasional use is okay and you know that's that's certainly a narrative that a lot of clients that I work with uh, uh, certainly say um, and they end up in this space of you know maybe after they've engaged in use and and they're in that come down period where they're feeling like they want to abstain and then a little bit of time rolls on but what I notice is when that time rolls on there's kind of this loss of what's next and and then it ends up back in that space of well I, I, I can use. 
really important day there, something that you've said um, about Q being a bit ambivalent about whether he's wanting to abstain completely or Mm. um, continue some use. Sometimes clients feel really guilty coming to tell me about the fact that they don't really want to, you know, give up completely. And it's like they're telling me their guilty little secret. I'm like, Mm -hmm. I don't have an opinion. This isn't my life. I don't yep. get. I don't mm-hmm. have a right to tell you that you have to cut off completely. Mm-hmm. So I really meet a client where they're at. If mm-hmm. they're telling me they want to abstain completely, cool, that's what we work with. If they're telling me they want to, you know, I had a client said, I don't want to smoke pot till 4.20 in the afternoon, <laughs> then mm-hmm. fine. That's that's where we're at. That's our goal. Unintended. It's not my goal. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. your goal and I don't have a right to tell you what that goal should yeah, be. Yeah, whether that's abstinence or harm minimization yeah, or absolutely. social use whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, I'm here to support you, exactly. not, um, not tell you, not yeah. demand and, something from and you. And that is where we as clinicians really need to play into this space of um, – connecting and accepting and not kind of encouraging or playing into any shame because yep. if Absolutely. we're if we're saying if we're saying abstinence is your only yeah. option then how can a client feel comfortable yeah. walking into our into our and room if, and telling us when when they've engaged in use and do you know yeah. what that's one of my main um like there are lots of reasons i'm wanting to do this podcast but i think really broadly in the lgbt community um clients have been met um, with some level of non-acceptance by clinicians in past. Mm. And that um, devastates me. And I hate it when I have a client come and tell me that experience. And I hate because I just feel so angry on behalf of that experience and mm-hmm. so unfair um, that they've been through that experience. Yeah. So if that's you... I, I really would encourage you that, you know, a psychologist or a clinician, it's just a type of relationship and you're not going to want to get in a relationship with everyone. So keep getting back out there, <laughs> jump on a new wait list, ask to speak to the site for a couple of minutes on the phone to just get a good vibe whether that might be the right fit because there are people out there that want to support you and will be the right fit for you. I don't know about you, Jamie, but another thing that I think is really important here, and Tom, I know you'll agree with this, is kind of a multidisciplinary level of support for Q here for someone going through this. Um, So, you know, GP, psychiatry if needed, psychology, Mm -hmm. obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also like to think, you know, drawing back onto this idea of the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety, the opposite of addiction is connection, Mm. then I really like to support people in experiencing what Q's experiencing into group programs as Mm. well. And there's lots, lots available. Um, I guess more traditionally, we know, you know, Narcotics Anonymous, NA, that's not for everyone, uh, you know, because it is a little bit more kind of um, spiritual. spiritual religion yeah. based, 12 yeah. step yeah. program yeah. type of stuff. And I it don't is abstinence only. It is yeah. abstinence only, yeah. yeah. And, um, uh, I think it works for a lot of people. Yeah. So I don't like to say it shouldn't be an option simply for those reasons yeah. because I know I've worked with a lot of clients who have gotten yeah. so much out of that program, but it isn't yeah. for everyone. Yeah. So if you're working in maybe uh, if we can support Q into, you know, into an NA if that's right for him or into, you know, more of a kind of a smart group, which yeah. is maybe a little bit more harm minimization, like yeah. something like, you know, or even something like Rewired at Thorn Harbour down here in Melbourne. Um, I think a group program can be a really fantastic aspect of, of um recovery and support for for anyone in this situation okay gang final thoughts tom i just want to build like this beautiful family around all my um patients who are suffering with this uh because really it's about support it's about making people feel connected it's about making people feel like they've got that person or people they can like reach out to if they're having those urges and like know that they're not going to be hit with judgment in the face 
My final thought here is actually, uh, I'm going to send it out to any clinicians, any mm. mental health clinicians who might be listening. And I'm going to, instead of sending it to Q, I'm going to send it on behalf of Q. And I'm going to ask that you treat addiction in the same way that you treat every other mental illness. And that is in an accepting, non-judgmental, collaborative way. Yeah. Please do not shame someone out of addiction. You would not shame a client out of depression. You would not yeah. shame a client out of uh, an anxiety disorder or OCD. So um, please, let's make sure that we are mm. looking at addiction in the same way that we're looking at all other mental health issues. Um, Absolutely. Dave Demmer, <laughs> available for supervision. <laughs> let, Let's just pop a little yeah. soapbox for you to stand on there because it's well deserved. I think we're yeah. all doing the best we can out here as clinicians. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so that's certainly but not pointed at it's anyone. It's a helpful reminder. It is, yeah. And I think that it, we it's... We can have our own barriers. Absolutely. It's at a societal yeah. level as well. Yeah, so maybe that's absolutely. actually a call out to society, not yeah. just clinicians. Society. Yeah. <laughs> no, like, yeah. We're, we're broadening the scope. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. just, just everyone. So just so I don't get backlash about that. Yeah. Um, and I think that my final thought is about the shame that Q's experiencing, um, and first off, that um, it's really normal what you're going through, Q, and it's about um, starting to figure out what's next for you and who you want to be now that, you know, crystal meth has been a really big part of your life and this is a really big thing that you've gone through. But what next? I think that sometimes the temptation is that, um, you know, this this is likely to be um, a continuing part of your life, that you are in recovery and this is something that we can't forget. But it's that beautiful balance beam between um, this being a part of your past but not dictating your future. Bang. That's the end of season one. Aww. How are you feeling? Well, oh, now I'm feeling I, sad. Yeah. I was feeling really nice just a moment ago. It's going to be like, I'm going to miss your faces. Aww. Well, excitedly, we're going to come back for season two, so you won't have to do without yeah. us for too long, huh? Yeah. I'll bring the plastic bags. The paper bags. Well, maybe we should go pop a bottle of champagne, celebrate the success of Meet Q Season 1. Exactly. Drinking mm. moderately, of course. Thank you um, to all of our listeners out there who yeah. have supported us and oh. rated and reviewed us, and it really means a lot. And keep doing that, please. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Like, please like and subscribe and do all those things that, like, the social media yeah. things do. And we um, want to hear your stories. Absolutely. Yeah. We want like, to hear your stories. Write them in. We're, um, yeah, going to be coming to you with Season 2, hopefully sometime soon, mm-hmm. uh, with some stories from our listeners. Yeah, fantastic. Exciting. Great. See you all. Bye. Meet Q is brought to you by Q Psychology, Melbourne's leading private psychology practice for the LGBT QIAP plus community. Q is a fictional character. Any similarities to a specific person are coincidental and are due to Q representing common mental health difficulties experienced by members of the queer community. Any advice provided by the presenters is general in nature and should not replace specific and individualised mental health support that might be needed. If you or someone you know is struggling with their mental health, Lifeline is available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week on 13 11 14. Rainbow Door is available on 1800 729 367, 10am to 5pm, 7 days a week. And Q Life is available on 1800 184 527, 3pm to midnight every day. Please visit the Meet Q website at www.meetqpodcast.com for further specific LGBTQIAP mental health resources.